As you remain standing, you can grab your Bibles and turn to Job. Chapter 16 is where we're going to begin our reading together tonight. We are going to be looking at all of chapter 15 through 17. But instead of starting as we have in recent weeks with the word, the chapter that corresponds to one of Job's counselors, we're going to start tonight with the first of Job's two chapters of response to Eliphaz. And you'll want to pay attention to how Job thinks about his life's suffering as interacting with God's sovereignty, for that will come out soon enough. So let's hear now as God speaks to us through his perfect word. Then Job answered and said, I've heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Shall windy words have an end? Or what provokes you that you answer? I also could speak as you do if you were in my place. I could join words together against you and shake my head at you. I could strengthen you with my mouth and the solace of my lips would assuage your pain. If I speak, my pain is not assuaged. And if I forbear, how much of it leaves me? Surely now God has worn me out. He has made desolate all my company and he has shriveled me up which is a witness against me, and my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth against me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Men have gaped at me with their mouth. They have struck me insolently on the cheek. They mass themselves together against me. God gives me up to the ungodly. And cast me into the hands of the wicked. I was at ease and he broke me apart. He seized me by the neck and dashed me into pieces. He set me up as his target. His archers surround me. He slashes open my kidneys and does not spare. He pours out my gall on the ground. He breaks me with breach upon breach. He runs upon me like a warrior. I have sewed sackcloth upon my skin and have laid my strength in the dust. My face is red with weeping. And on my eyelids is deep darkness, although there is no violence in my hands, and my prayer is pure. O earth, cover not my blood, and let my cry find no resting place. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven, and he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me. My eye pours out tears to God, that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. For when a few years have come... I shall go the way from which I shall not return. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's pray once again. Father, we thank you that you rule and reign over all things. That by your hands of providence you govern and guide every creature and every living thing. That they might resound unto your glory. Father, we want to have your strength. We want to have your comfort in the midst of whatever the suffering or affliction we might face this day or this coming week, that we would be able to sing forth the praises of your name, that you are still to be blessed in the season of loss where we might find ourselves. So use this word to strengthen us, and to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Some of you may know the existentialist philosopher, a man named Jean-Paul Sartre, who was a famous French philosopher in the 20th century. And if you don't know anything about him, it's really kind of unimportant and insignificant even to the larger story of which I want to tell you about today, because he was a man that was a lifelong and devoted atheist. 
And so in 1980, when he came to his death, it was quite clear that he was soon going to pass from this world. He began to mutter a phrase that friends and family members noted, I will die in hope. Now understand how shocking that might be to certain people that confess atheism. I will die in hope. But almost invariably when he would say that phrase, I will die in hope. It wasn't a few seconds later until he almost responded with great sadness and realization. But hope has to find a foundation. And so he passed from this world in 1980, the age of 75, if I recall correctly, having no foundation for his hope. Therefore, he died without hope. And the reason I tell you that is because we come to an interaction with Job and one of his friends that finds Job by the very end at the conclusion of chapter 17, asking, where is my hope? Who shall see my hope? So what we're trying to discover along the way in this simple conversation between Job and his friend Eliphaz is something about the nature of hope in suffering. I'm sure that all of you can know or perhaps recall that 1 Corinthians chapter 13 tells us that hope belongs to this trinity of Christian graces. Faith, hope, and love are these triumvirate of Christian graces that belongs to our life in in Jesus Christ. And hope is something we talk about a lot, isn't it? I would imagine even this day you might have looked over at your spouse or perhaps a family member and said, well, I hope tomorrow's not as hot as it says it's going to be outside because we think about hope, don't we, in terms of uncertainty, Well, I hope that I'll wake up and have a good breakfast tomorrow morning. I hope school's going to end sometime soon. I hope this week doesn't bring as much stress and anxiety as last week did. But when we come to hope in Scripture, uh, we come to something that is in no way uncertain. Uh, For hope in Scripture is certain anticipation. It's confident expectation. And we all know, don't we, that it's one thing to have hope in happy times. It's completely different to have hope in the hard times. The hurting times. You know, kids, you you might think about it this way. Perhaps in the coming weeks, there'll be something of a tornado warning that sounds forth. Perhaps a siren booming out in your neighborhood. And there's this storm that's approaching your home. Well, I would imagine that many of you children would hope that your home provides shelter from the storm. You expect, perhaps you'll go into a closet. Perhaps you'll go into a certain room near the middle of the house. And you're going to hope that the structure holds in the storm. But Job's helping us understand and even ask the question of what is our hope when storms of suffering arrive? Under what will we find shelter? In whom will we find refuge? Where is my hope is what Job asks tonight. And so we want to see that in this exchange he has now for the second time with Eliphaz. And so where we left off last week, if you weren't with us, uh, we saw this kind of circle of initial conversations with Job and his three friends come to its first round of conclusion. So we met this man named Zophar. Zophar, probably because he speaks last, was the youngest of the three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. It becomes quite clear not long after he opens his mouth that as Eliphaz and Job were talking, Then Bildad and Job were talking that Eliphaz, I'm sorry, Zophar seemingly was there around that counselor's circle, almost sitting on his hands, having a very difficult time keeping his mouth shut. His anger and his anguish was rising based upon all the arguments he was hearing. And what we heard him say to Job last week was the most careless thing that had been said by a number of 
careless men already to this point. Because Bildad had said in that second conversation in the first cycle, he had said, Job, you are getting what you deserve. The loss of all your wealth, the sudden tragic loss of all your ten children, the loss of all your health, that's just what you deserve. Well, Zophar comes along and says, no, Job, it's actually worse than that. You deserve worse than what you have experienced. And we said last week that it's not exactly clear how Job's experience could be any worse. You know, I said maybe it's as though Zophar thinks his children, instead of dying in a tornado, should have been tortured unto their death. And so we see Eliphaz now come to the forefront to speak again tonight. We'll see his prosecution in chapter 15 before we want to hear Job's pain once again in chapters 16 and 17. And if you can remember several weeks back, Eliphaz, when he first was counseling Job, he by far was the most noticeably gentle counselor that came along to Job. But it's clear now that we turn our attention to chapter 15, he's lost his patience, he's at his boiling point, and he himself is going to erupt upon Job, because you notice in the first few verses of chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, again, it's this metaphor that the friends and Job have often used about arguments being nothing more than hot air blown about. And then what he says, notice verse 5 to Job, for your iniquity teaches your mouth. You choose the tongue of the crafty. Can you think of another time in the Old Testament when something is said to be crafty? Well, it was the same word that was used in Genesis chapter 3, speaking about a serpent, Satan, who was the craftiest of all the animals. And so perhaps you can begin to understand maybe why it is that the friends of Job feel more like enemies in light of his logic and rationale, because they seem to think that his arguments are nothing more than demonic at their core. And then if you see what he says in verse 6, your own mouth condemns you and not I, your own lips testify you against you. For whatever kind of facade you're putting forth, Job, it's nothing more than just the expression of a plagued conscience is what Zo, uh, Zo, I'm sorry, Eliphaz is really saying here. He's saying here, you're, you're making it out to be as though you do have this clean conscience in the midst of your suffering, but your words only uh, condemn you. And so you'll notice then what he says in verse 7. Are you the first man who is born... Or were you brought forth before the hills? Have you listened in the counsel of God? And do you limit wisdom to yourself? So students, what is he saying? He's saying, Job, all your arguments are the arguments of the arrogant. Do you really know better than everyone else? Are you so skilled in wisdom that it was though you were part of the divine counsel from eternity past and therefore you have some unique perspective into God's divine mind in the midst of suffering and in Eliphaz's mind. Clearly, Job, you don't have this information. And then he says, if you just glance down to verse 11, something that ought to be quite surprising by this point in the conversations. Are the comforts of God too small for you or the word that deals gently with you? I remember some years ago being with a gathering of brothers and there was a particular pastor that was charged with an, the role of exhorting this group as we gathered together. And he took for his text a specific part of the New Testament that night and, and proceeded to exhort uh, the group. And what he intended to be comforting to the group was actually quite crushing 
as many a man that left that night utterly despairing in their own spirit. And I remember I pulled him aside in the parking lot afterwards and kind of took him by the shoulder. And for about 90 minutes, we talked about what had just happened because I tried to tell him, brother, do you understand you just bruised a bunch of reeds in there? You probably even broke a few of them, quenched these flickering flames, which you know our Lord Jesus Christ doesn't do. And in his sincere, genuine nature, he said, no, I had no idea that actually happened. Now, if you were in the room, you would think like, how did you miss what you said? Wasn't it all comforting that it was just crushing? But it seems as though Eliphaz is almost doing the exact same thing here. Because if you've paid attention to the first cycle of conversations, you might think, what in what Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have said at this point would lead this man to say, are God's comforts too small for you? Or do you think any of the friends have actually been dealing gently with Job at this point? I hope you know that it's possible that even in our own counseling of people who are suffering, that if we lack discernment and wisdom, we might think we are comforting when in all actuality we're just crushing what is already a broken spirit. Eliphaz has no idea that that's going on. And so he continues to burst forth and he basically bursts out against Job along the way, assuming again Job is sinful. And so what you'll see him say, notice verse 17, I will show you, hear me, and what I have seen I will declare. He's reading his divine or his seemingly divine counsel in his experience and tradition of the elders at this point. And then what you just need to know about the second half of chapter 15, it's nothing more than Eliphaz preaching a sermon on God's judgment that falls upon the wicked. Or even if it seems that the wicked people escape judgment, it's only a temporary escape. Just a few verses to show that out. Notice verse 20 and 21. He says, The wicked man writhes in pain all his days. Though all the years that are laid up for the ruthless, dreadful sounds are in his ears, and prosperity, the destroyer, will come upon him. If you scan your eyes, you just see it's one phrase after another that's heaping up the retribution that wicked people deserve based upon their sin. And if you were to take this sermon out of context, you would see it's a really good sermon on judgment. It actually is quite true. Judgment falls upon the wicked. And even there's a time, perhaps for a temporary period of time, that the wicked seem to escape judgment. But in the end, judgment's going to catch up on them. But the problem is this. It's not true about Job. It's a really good sermon. It just has nothing to do with his audience. And maybe you've been perhaps in churches before where uh, you've heard a, a really good sermon. But it doesn't seem to have to do anything with this congregation. I've heard sermons like that before that, hey, that, that's true enough according to the text, but your application has nothing to do with this audience. And that's going on with Eliphaz and his prosecution of Job. So I want to give our attention most of all tonight to chapters 16 and 17, primarily chapter 16, as we think now about Job's pain. Because look at what he says in Verse 2 of chapter 16, I have heard many such things. Eliphaz, nothing is new in what you're telling me. Miserable comforters are you all. The original language there is more like, you're just a bunch of troublers. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. He goes on to say that I too could offer counsel if I was able to give comfort to somebody. But notice verse 6, if I speak... 
My pain is not assuaged, and if I forbear, how much of it leaves me? I had a friend one time that added up all of the words of Job by this point, really to this point in the book, and he tallied them all up and realized that Job has already spoken by chapter 16 in this wonderful book more words than 17 books of the New Testament speak, such as the words of Job. And it's as though he's saying at this point in chapter 16, what's the point of even saying anything anymore? None of your words are, are helpful, friends. None of my words are, are doing anything other than stirring up all the pain. My pain is not assuaged, he says. And what is his conclusion? Notice verse 7. Surely now God has worn me out. I wonder if any of you have been in a place where you might want to say the same thing. Surely now God has worn me out. So what Job is doing here in chapter 16 is something that he's been wrestling with, hasn't he, throughout really the entirety of this book. How do you reconcile the reality of God's sovereignty over all things, thus including his sovereignty over Job's suffering, with Job's own difficulty and experience? So notice how he begins to speak about God's sovereignty in his life. Look at verse 8 and following. He has shriveled me up which is a witness against me, and my leanness has risen up against me. It testifies to my face. He's saying, guys, look, my body is falling apart. I'm withered and falling away, and my very emaciated physical nature proves God is against me. Keep going, verse 9. He has torn me in his wrath and hated me. He has gnashed his teeth at me. My adversary sharpens his eyes against me. Have you just kind of noticed the next few verses, all of the subject and verb arrangements about God and his sovereignty. God gives me up to the ungodly, cast me into the hands of the wicked. He sees me by the neck, dash me to pieces, set me up at his target, slashes open my kidneys, pours out my gall, breaks me with breach upon breach. Do you think Job has an accurate view of God's sovereignty at this point? Certainly he's right that God is sovereign. That God has brought all of this into his life. But he's wrong to make it out as he almost seems to be that God is enjoying, taking great pleasure, like a wave attack upon wave attack, destroying Job one breach after the other. Even as I was reading this passage with the children recently in our house, one of them rightly singled in on that phrase in verse 9, that he has torn me in his wrath and hated me. God never hates his children, does he? Absolutely not. But maybe some of you know how it can feel in the experience of suffering that he is hating me. So what's Job going to do in the midst of this swirling struggle related to God's sovereignty? Well, you'll see now in chapter 17, he begins to go to the place where Job often goes, which is death. You see the end of chapter 16, A few years are going to come, and I shall go the way from which I shall not return. Verse 1 of chapter 17, my spirit is broken, my days are extinct, the graveyard is ready for me. Then he begins another soliloquy, this lament about the death that's along the way. Skip down to verse 11, my days are past, my plans are broken off, the desires of my heart, leading him to ask, notice verse 15, where then? Is my hope. Who 
will see my hope. Does Job have any hope in the midst of what seems to be to him as senseless suffering under the sovereign hand of God? Someone recently pointed me to this video about the need for people to hang from a branch or a raised bar for a total of seven minutes a day. Just hang there and it's going to sort out some problems with your back and your neck and your shoulders and your posture, so on and so forth. Now kids, you can imagine, perhaps you've played at a playground and you've tried to hang from a monkey bar. And I wonder how long, children, you, you can hang there before it feels as though you just have to let go. And you would know, of course, you can't probably make it very long, any of us in the room tonight, before the body wants to let go. Why? Well, because your grip strength isn't strong enough at the most basic level. You just don't have a strong enough grip to keep holding on when all your weight is wanting to collapse down to the earth. And so what I'm trying to ask the question is here tonight in light of chapter 17 is, what is Job holding on to in the midst of his suffering? How is Job's spiritual grip strength in his suffering? Because what you're actually going to see now is I want to just situate our time here at the end, at the conclusion of chapter 16, is he's giving us two simple reasons for why he is still hoping in God. Because remember, in the course of this narrative, what hasn't Job done yet that Satan wanted him to do? Curse God. Reject God. Be done with God. Why is he holding on? Does he even have hope? Well, I think he has two things in which he is hoping. Job hopes, number one, in his clean conscience. Notice what we're told in verse 16 and 17. Chapter 16. He admits, my face is red with weeping, and on my eyelids is deep darkness. Although there is no violence in my hands, and my prayer is pure. He's having quite a struggle, isn't he? Because before this suffering, he probably would have agreed with his friend's retribution theology. Remember that theology that simply says you get what you deserve, so you need to repent in order to be restored. But he says, this doesn't make any sense anymore because there's nothing. My conscience is clean. It's clear. There's nothing I have done to deserve all of this. It doesn't make any sense. And it's that very clean conscience that leads to the true place of his hope in the remainder of this chapter. But before we turn there, perhaps it's something that's even good for you to examine your heart and mind on tonight. How is your conscience before the Lord? Maybe you know what it feels like to come into God's presence on a Lord's Day morning or evening service and your conscience is plagued with something you did last night. Something maybe you even said on the way to church. Something that perhaps you even did years ago. And that conscience is not freeing you, that conscience is binding you. But the good news of Jesus Christ, of course, is that his blood alone can cleanse the conscience as the book of Hebrews says, it can wash away that which binds you that you might be free before him. There's a joy, isn't there, to having a clean conscience before the Lord. But the reason you need to understand Job is hoping in his clean conscience, or perhaps his clean conscience is giving in hope, is because of what that gets to in this second part. That he has hope for a heavenly counselor. Look at verse 18 and following. O earth, cover not my blood, and let my cry find no resting place. 
Uh, the language might come to mind of blood crying out. Wasn't it true of Abel's blood in Genesis that it was crying out for the sin that had been committed against it? And we know even from Hebrews, don't we, that Jesus' blood, it speaks a better word. It cries out. So Job is saying out, let my blood cry out. Why? Notice verse 19. Even now, behold, my witness is in heaven. And he who testifies for me is on high. My friends scorn me. My eyes pour out tears to God that he would argue the case of a man with God as a son of man does with his neighbor. What is he saying? My conscience is clean. I am righteous in this situation of suffering and I am desperate for someone to plead my case. We've talked about that in recent weeks and previous chapters. What Job is saying now by this point in chapter 16 If God is not going to come down on earth to give me my day in court, nor if I'm going to go to heaven and get my day in court, my conscience is clean. Therefore, there must be someone in heaven who is going to plead my case before God. There must be someone who will argue the case of a man with God. And the good news, of course, is that we know his name. Job didn't. Uh, We know his name is Jesus Christ. So when the heavens feel like they're shut up like brass and God's sovereign storm of suffering comes into your life, that seems altogether unexplainable. It seems as though you have nothing on which you can hold. The great good news of Jesus Christ is that you have a mediator, you have a counselor, you have an advocate, you have an intercessor in heaven so that your hope in the midst of suffering isn't in the fact that you hold to him, though you must. Uh, Your hope is that he's holding on to you to ensure that you'll never get to the point of cursing his name and giving God the glory all the way through that which you have lost. What is your hope in the midst of your hardship? Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would fill us with the hope of Jesus Christ, that by your Spirit our hearts may abound in hope, knowing that Jesus Christ, who is the hope of glory, is residing in our hearts by faith, that we might be stable and steadfast, that we might be immovable in the face of hardship and difficulty. So build us up in him that we might find comfort. Convict us of the sin, the way in which we've fallen short, that we might find freedom in Christ's blood. And we pray it all in his precious name. Amen.